According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Philippians chapter 2, Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. Verses 12 through 18, we got to start on this last Wednesday, so this will be now our second uh, crack at a new paragraph. This is the third out of the three exhortations that make up the first half of the chapter. Uh, the, the final portion of the chapter in verses 19 through whatever, 30, down through the end of the chapter centers on the travel arrangements that Paul is hoping to send uh, Timothy and to send Epaphroditus and even himself. Paul would love to come and visit them again uh, when he is released, if he is released. Uh, but before we get to the travel plans, the first half of the chapter, 18 verses, centers on these exhortations. Chapter 2 features three exhortations and some travel arrangements for Paul's envoys. These exhortations are follow-ups to the closing exhortation of chapter 1. The first, of course, is make my joy complete, which we dealt with in verses 1 and 2. The conclusion to make my joy complete led right into the second exhortation, which is have this attitude. And that's what we've been spending the bulk of our time with in uh, chapter 2 is have this attitude verses 3 through 11, and what we've come to today, the third exhortation is work out your salvation. Work out your salvation, as it says says here. Uh, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In preparation for the study of the Word of God this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your faithfulness. We thank You for Your work. We thank You for the reality that this passage describes for us, that You are the one presently engaged in and through us both to will and to do of your good pleasure. I pray that we would understand these things, that we'd become fellow workers with what you're doing. And uh, Father, just uh, continue to continue to open our eyes to these powerful truths. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. I tell you, so many of these things are, are vital for uh, application, uh, to have this attitude, which was also in Christ Jesus. Uh, without that attitude, what are we really doing? And why are we here? And uh, so many of these things. The book of Philippians, I think, sets uh, the table for any believer uh, in in the victorious conclusion of their Christian walk. I mean, it just lays it right out there. So that's what we're dealing with there. Working out your salvation begins with a so then. So then, my beloved. And we spent some time Wednesday detailing uh, some differences between some therefores and some so thens and what, uh, what then and different ways that uh, conjunctions can uh, carry you across from one development to another. And Greek is very good at this. The New Testament is very good at this. English does not do it that way. In fact, your English teacher will mark you down if you begin a sentence this way. But Greek does it all the time and uh, likes to begin with an and or a but or a therefore or a then or a so, things of that nature. And there's, there's dozens, literally, of these, uh, of these connective conjunctions some of them are more impactful than others, and this one I think is, is so much so uh, that we spent some time with it, because it's that so then that brings the reader across. It, it takes the, the whole kenosis doctrine. So then takes the doctrine of humility and exaltation. That's what the kenosis hymn was all about, how Jesus Christ humbled himself so the Father could exalt him. So then takes the doctrine of humility and exaltation of Jesus Christ in the Kenosis hymn and directs the application to the Philippians. And understand what this is dealing with. It's it's dealing with it on a volitional basis whereby you and I, the readers, uh, the Philippian recipients of this letter, we are expected to digest the content of the doctrine and then bring it to a point of application ourselves. All right. There's a lot of different ways you can say therefore. There's a lot of different ways that you can, that a thinker can come to a logical conclusion. And you can come to logical conclusions with other kinds of therefores. 
All right, you can, you can have a statement and then a therefore. You have a statement and a therefore. The, the, the Greeks are great at that. The Greek language is great for that. The New Testament is great for that. A lot of ways that you can have a logical therefore that still doesn't hit you in the same way. You can have any number of logical therefores where you understand what the Bible is saying, but you yourself aren't necessarily um, overwhelmed with a need for immediate application. Does that make sense? This passage is not like that. This passage is a so then, all right? So then, given that all of this is true, what are you going to do about it? What is your commitment? What is your uh, obligation? What is your application with respect to your own humility, your own obedience, your own exaltation? What are you going to do? Jesus set the pattern. Are you going to follow it? Because it's humility that leads to exaltation. Because he humbled himself, the Father bestowed upon him a name. What, what sort of name is the Father going to bestow upon you? How are you humbling yourself? How are you um, working out your salvation with fear and trembling? Okay? What kind of name do you expect to receive? And that's the, uh, the application here. And so uh, Wednesday, I'm not going to go through it, but this, uh, this BDAG lexicon is very useful because it shows you not only expressions and what they mean, but also how they're used, for example. And uh, that's, uh, I think it's, uh, sometimes it's the grammar, it's the syntax that actually has more of an impact than the word itself, as, uh, as is the case here. So uh, as we dealt with that, if you missed it on a Wednesday, I encourage you to listen to the MP3. Although the MP3 won't let you see the visual graphic of the of the uh, of the lexicon and, and how it's broken down there, but be that as it may, um, understand Jesus was obedient without limit, as were the Philippians. Now I've tweaked this slightly, so if you wrote these notes down Wednesday night, you're going to find they're slightly tweaked, and uh, so you might want to re rewrite it down and and uh, so forth. I thought it was getting too complicated and too lengthy. So I thought let's break it down and, and spell it out on a, on a shorter basis. So Jesus was obedient without limit as were the Philippians. And there's stages that they did this in. Of course Jesus, when we saw His obedience in verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the language of verse 8 shows a progression of obedience whereby he was obedient, he was obedient to the point of death, even to the death on a cross, and kind of a three-stage progression there of obedience. And you might recall, if you were here, that as, as we were studying that, as I was teaching that, that quite frequently obedience is, is a matter for, for, I'll just preach to myself, for you and for me, whereby we're good early on, but then the longer it goes, the tougher it gets. And we reach a point volitionally where we start to consider haven't we obeyed long enough? Is that not sufficient? When can we stop? Can we move on to a different test now? I'm done with this one. And, and we, we start to realize that the prolonged obedience sometimes becomes a, a test all of its own. That sometimes we reach uh, either a duration or an extent, a, uh, a, uh, an intensity to the testing. And when you say, that's enough now, Lord, haven't I been obedient? And we want to draw a line. Jesus could have easily drawn a line and said, well, I've been obedient. I don't want to be obedient to the point of death or even death on the cross. What is the severity of that about? And and so uh, this is the example too in verse 12 we see now with the Philippians. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, and we see some progressions here also. They have always obeyed. Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. All right, and what a, what a compliment, what a statement for him to make because this uh, was not the case for the Corinthians, all right? But this was the case for the Philippians. In, uh, you know, I, I think we've all had a particular child that you, uh, <laughs> you know they're going to do what they're told to do. And even uh, when you're not there watching them, you have faith that when you get back, that, uh, that you're going to be blessed by their obedience in the meantime, that you're going to return uh, in whatever length of time, maybe an hour later, a day later, whenever. Okay? Then you have other children five minutes out of your absence, and you're thinking, it's the end of the world. Where's the obedience going to happen? 
okay? Or church members, doesn't have to be children. <laughs> or, uh, or spouses, okay? All right, pick your, uh, pick your illustration. But here are the Philippians, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. And the, and the, the expressions there are clues, I think, uh, with respect to the fact that Paul has only been to Philippi one time, one time only. That's in Acts chapter 16 when they beat him and they put him in jail and, uh, and then he was released the next morning and the, the Philippian jailer got saved. And we, we, we know the story, we know the information there, but the indication is that's the one and only time he's been there. The way that this is phrased, that they were obedient in his presence that one time he was there and now much more in his subsequent absence, that he has not yet been back. And you might recall when we were introducing the book, this really argues for an earlier date, an earlier writing, an earlier setting. It does not allow for the journeys back through Philippi, back through Macedonia a second time when he leaves Ephesus, when he's on that third missionary journey, before he writes 2 Corinthians, before he writes Romans. Because when 2 Corinthians and Romans get written, Paul's already had a second time through Philippi by then, maybe even a third time through Philippi by then. And so it really forms a, an interesting puzzle when you're trying to, to, uh, to uh, coordinate all of Paul's journeys and all of Paul's epistles, and you're kind of stuck with the traditional date and the traditional uh, origin of the prison epistles. Uh, if, if you're just trapped by tradition, like you, know, you want to insist on calling today Palm Sunday for some reason, if you are a slave to a Roman Catholic tradition, then you've got to go with the Roman origin of the prison epistles in the early 60s, 60, 61 AD. And I think you've got a problem with this text. You've got a problem with other texts as it relates to the journeys back and forth. So anyway, I would encourage you uh, to go back through what we taught with uh, Paul's om- uh, Luke's omissions and Paul's admissions. Remember when we did a kind of a coordinated study there uh, to introduce the prison epistles. All right called it the disharmony of the epistles, remember that? Or uh, had different names for that, uh, for that study. Anyway, this is, uh, this is a verse that contains some of that language. Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. So, Jesus was obedient without limit, as were the Philippians. The Philippians always, subpoint one now, uh, and these you did not have last Wednesday. I thought it would just be better to break it up into smaller points. The Philippians always obeyed in Paul's presence and much more in his absence. And those terms, those terms are curious to me, the parousia and the apousia. Subpoint two now, the use of parousia and apousia. I find that to be significant. The pattern of presence versus absence, the pattern of obedience is curious to me. The use of parousia and apousia is significant since the absence and imminent presence of Jesus Christ defines the entire dispensation of the church. The church age in which you and I live, how would you describe it? There's different ways you can describe it, of course. It's the church age is unique. The church age is a mystery. The church age was not known in the Old Testament. And so there's ways that it can be described and uh, some very common ways that it can be described include the fact that we have a dispensation in which there is no distinction between Jew or Gentile. So I kind of like that. We have a dispensation in which there is no distinction between male and female, between bond or free. Uh, and the, the different distinctions, all of those are set aside because we are a one body in Christ. And we have a positional truth reality that is for every man, every woman, every Jew, every Gentile, every rich person, every poor person, right? Lottie-dottie, everybody. When you get saved, when you place your faith in Christ, man, you're part of the body and bride of Jesus Christ. And what, a, what a, uh, an amazing truth. None of that was true in the Old Testament. None of that was true for Israel and their stewardship, for the Gentiles and their stewardship, for the angels and their stewardship as we understand it. Okay? We have a new reality in the church age. We have a Hebrew canon and a Greek canon of Scripture. What a blessing. And it's, it's the totality of that is described as the mind of Christ in what we have as church age believer priests with the filling of the Holy Spirit and all these resources that are available. Another significant thing is we have a Savior seated at the right hand of God the Father. 
the victorious Savior who is seated in session. And Israel, what advantage the Jew? Great in every, every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God, but guess what? All they had was a Hebrew canon. They didn't have the Greek canon. So they had, their advantage pales compared to our advantage. Something else Israel had, they had Jesus. He walked this earth. He walked this earth for, you know, I think he was pushing 40 by the time uh, he died. And uh, of course, he was over 30 before he even started ministry. The, the disciples got to walk with him for three and a half years, almost four years. In uh, when you do the harmony of the Gospels and you track the entire uh, career of, uh, of Jesus Christ, right? From the baptism to the, to the ascension. And so, is that an advantage? Wouldn't it be cool to be a disciple? To walk with Jesus, to, you know, I mean, well, yeah, but we have something so much more. And they didn't grab that at the, on, uh, at the time. They were so discouraged. Every time he kept talking about the cross, like, oh, here he goes again. Okay? They didn't want to hear it. Pretty common, I think. Believers don't want to hear tough messages. And they didn't want to hear about the cross and the death and the resurrection. Okay? And it is not even until Peter and John are standing there in the empty tomb did they finally, did, did, was faith able to unite with the word they'd heard and uh, put that together. What I'm saying is, is the age of Israel, the dispensation of Israel, age of the incarnation was an interesting thing, but Jesus told them, it is to your advantage that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the helper can't come. He says, I'm going to go and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And so we have a unique circumstance in the church age. We have, you could, the whole church age is characterized by the absence of our Savior. And that's a good thing. Because while He's not here, He's there. While He is bodily seated at the Father's right hand, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's a good thing. So the apousia, the absence of our Savior... Apusia, by the way, I highlighted this on Wednesday. The Strong's number is 666. So how, uh, <laughs> how antichrist is that? All right? Teasing. It's just a coincidence, okay? Don't make a big deal out of it. We just know that James Strong was not superstitious when he was working as, you know, I probably would have skipped over it, gone from 665 to 667, like, you know, like floor 13 in an elevator or something. You just, you have a certain number you don't want to use, but James Strong didn't care. He just numbered them and just kept on going. 665, 666, 667. Um, it is a hapax legomena though, so you don't really do a lengthy word study and it's only used one time. This is the verse. This is the only verse in the New Testament that has Strong's number 666 in it. All right. Uh, but there's no question what the word means. A pussy is well attested in secular Greek and other other places. So we got parousia and apousia, the absence and the presence. And what an illustration Paul is using as an illustration and how it is that the Philippians stayed in the will of God even when Paul was gone. Okay? What are we going to do in the absence of our Savior? Are we going to be found faithful when He returns? And think about all those parables that Jesus was talking about that are anticipating His parousia anticipating His return, anticipating His coming. And so we got parable after parable after parable where Jesus is teaching the disciples there about blessed is that good and faithful servant, right? And if you're going to be a wicked, lazy slave, if you're going to use the absence of your master as an excuse to mistreat your fellow slaves, or if you get lazy, if you get complacent, if you start to think in your own mind that, well, he's not coming back, or he's not coming back anytime soon, or, well, you know, I've got time, I'll get religious when I'm older. All these, uh, all these things that, uh, that, that humans fall into, well, guess what? He comes at an hour you don't expect. He comes like a thief. And so if, if, uh, if you would have known the, uh, the hour that the thief was breaking in, then you would have been, you know, you would have been ready. You would not have been caught unprepared. Uh, but since it is that burglars don't send you a text message to, to l- let you know, by the way, uh, we're going to be there tomorrow night at about 3.30 a.m., uh, you don't get those kind of notices. So uh, we get that. All right. So the use of Perusi and Apusi is significant. 
since the absence and imminent presence of Jesus Christ defines the entire dispensation of the church. An entire stewardship of imminency. How powerful is that? From the day it started, from Pentecost, the rapture could have been the next day. <laughs> okay? We, you know, it's been 2,000 years since then, but it could be today, it could be tomorrow. We're, we're waiting moment by moment as far as that goes. So um, here's some passages, and I'm just going to give them to you. We're going to go through them. Uh, hopefully they'll have an impact on each one of us. I think it's a, it's a comprehensive doctrine. If you've never studied parousia, I think it's worthwhile. Uh, just kind of a word of caution, though. A parousia gets abused. There are folks that uh, I think it's a precious promise. I think it's a, it's a concept that we embrace as dispensationalists, as pre-tribulational rapturists. It's a blessing for us to study. There are folks, though, that try to turn this word and abuse it, and they put more into it than is fair to put into it. It is not a technical term for the rapture. It is not a technical term for the second advent. Uh, parousia is not a te- technical term um, and in, it's used in eschatological context, but it's the context that determines its meaning, see. And there are plenty of times, as I said, uh, with those parables Jesus spoke of, where the return of the king, the return of the, of the master, is not rapture at all, it's second advent. And so for a Jewish person looking for the return of Christ, they're looking for the return of Christ to end the tribulation, to have victory at Armageddon, to bring in the kingdom. For you and me, when we talk about the return of Christ, we're looking for Jesus to descend to the clouds, to snatch us up in the air, to take us back to heaven, to the, to the, the mansions he's gone to prepare, right? And so the church is looking for the return of Christ. Israel is looking for the return of Christ. But we're looking for different returns. Does that make sense? I hope we're clear on that. Because the New Testament will use parousia both ways. The New Testament will use parousia for His coming for us and His coming with us at the second advent when He's coming for Israel. And so we want to be clear on that. All right. So starting in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 23, we got parousia. And when you're thinking... um, Parousia. Well, when you're thinking 1 Corinthians 15, what are you thinking? Resurrection. I mean, just right off the bat. It starts with the gospel and then you got resurrection. This is uh, just an incredible chapter of of Scripture. So we have the gospel in the first few verses and then we have uh, resurrection after that. And in this, verse 20, or this is why resurrection is so important. Next week, of course, is Easter Sunday and if there's no resurrection, there's no Christianity. <laughs> there's no body of Christ. There's no New Testament. So um, here we have it. And we're just a bunch of liars. So um, 1 Corinthians 15. How far do I want to back up? I won't read the whole chapter. <laughs> but verse 13 says, If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Jesus, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith is in vain. And we are false witnesses and witnesses of God. We testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. So, uh, verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. There's no resurrection, well then sorry. Your loved one that's gone on before, they're gone. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. I mean, seriously, if there's no resurrection, if there's no reward, if there's no eternal life, if there's no glory, then we're a bunch of chumps. We're a bunch of losers. We might as well just be, you know, out carnal the unbelievers and, and, uh, and have fun. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And understand why God had a first fruit sacrifice in the Old Testament. Why it is that the first fruits, you take the first gleanings, the first little harvest you can, the little mini crop that you can of the, of the gleanings, and you just take that first fruit and you wave it before the Lord. Okay? And you, and you do that not knowing what the full harvest is going to be like. You don't know what you're going to get at the end. You don't know what you, the total yield is going to be. But first fruits go to the Lord. And that's a, there's a pattern for that. So Christ has been raised, Doug. Christ has been raised first fruits, okay? 
And what's that the guarantee of? You and me. There's another harvest on the way. And uh, Christ has been raised first fruits. We're going to be raised. What a blessing. What a blessing. Okay? But each in his own order. So reading now from 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, by man came the resurrection of the dead. What a blessing that when God condemned Adam and Eve for that original sin, he condemned all of Adamic humanity. So that through the last Adam, he can then save all humanity. What a joy. Those who believe in Christ. So since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. This is our gospel. This is our blessing. And we can use the resurrection uh, evangelistically to show this. Look at, look at this. And, and it's, uh, it's not a comparison of who's a bigger sinner or who's, who's such a bad sinner that he can't be saved or who's not really that bad a sinner so they're, they're pretty savable. You know, nice people like you all, you're, you're practically savable anyway, so you're just so nice. Uh, see, it's not about that. There's no, there's no grading on a curve. There's no spectrum of who's better, who's worse. We're all Adamic humanity. We're all sinners. We're all condemned. In Adam, all die. But in Christ, all will be made alive. And so um, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou shalt be saved. That's the, that's the provision there. When you believe in Christ, He takes you from that domain of darkness. He transfers you to His beloved Son. You're not in Adam anymore. You're now in Christ as a believer. What a joy. So, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. So there is a structure for this. First of all, Christ the firstfruits. In Greek, it's the other way around. It says, first fruits Christ. First fruits Christ. So that's, that's a title. That's him. He's first fruits Christ. Uh, uh, then, or uh, uh, yeah, then, no, after that. Okay, so each in his own order, first fruits Christ. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. Those who are Christ at his parousia. And so this is why we're waiting for the parousia. This is our term, Perusia. 3952 is the Strong's Index number. We're waiting for the Perusia, and it could be today. It could be before we finish this hour. His Perusia. And so Jesus was raised on Easter Sunday. I believe it was Sunday, April 5th, 33 AD. And uh, he was first fruits Christ. After that, us. The next resurrection event is the rapture of the church. Those who are Christ at his coming. Then, and the then is a different uh, conjunction than the after that. The then comes the end. And uh, the end is, uh, is pretty long. <laughs> then comes the end. And you have the resurrection of the end, and, uh, which Paul didn't know was split into two parts, a thousand years separated, but that's all right. Then comes the end, the third and final resurrection. Resurrection of life, resurrection of judgment at the beginning and the end of the millennium. And then comes the end end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. Anyway, we get into other things there. Things that uh, I was delighted to speak on in, uh, in Houston last week. Let's turn uh, to 1 Thessalonians. And uh, in 1 Thessalonians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. All right. Get to 1 Thessalonians. And look at this, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. kind of think it was a big deal <laughs> to Paul in the correspondence to the Thessalonians. All right? This uh, was a big deal. And of course, Thessalon uh, Thessalonica was the sister church to Philippi. So when we're studying Philippians, the, uh, the tandem here is, uh, is good to know. All right, 1 Thessalonians 2.19. He talks about how he uh, can't wait to see them again. In verse 17, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, since Satan, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? They were there just a short time and then had to leave town. They got driven out of town. Jason had to put up money. It was a promise to the courts that Paul wasn't coming back. 
I call that the anti-bail, right? You ever post bail? Okay, don't tell them, I don't want to know. The, uh, <laughs> but some of you have, I, I get it, but that's okay. This is anti-bail. When you post bail, you're promising the judge to say, I will come back to face my trial. And so the judge, if he thinks you're trustworthy or not, he'll assign that. And then, uh, and then when you come back for trial, you know, if you don't skip, if you don't come back for trial, then you lose your bail money. There's, there's a consequence to skipping it. Well, this is an anti-bail. This is, here's my money, and I promise I'm not coming back. So the church is in trouble. Jason, in particular, who sponsored that, he put up the money to guarantee that, that Paul wasn't coming back. So uh, they snuck Timothy in instead. <laughs> Timothy, 10 years old probably, 10 or 12 years old, I'm guessing, went back into Thessalonica and was able to teach all the doctrine Paul was going to teach him. And that's, uh, that's a marvelous thing. So we get to this, and he says, I wanted to come back, can't, but verse 19, who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His parousia, at His coming. For you are our glory and joy. What do you have to look forward to at the trumpet, at the rapture of the church? I look forward to watching all of you get your rewards. I look forward to the joy of seeing Austin Bible Church, the saints of Austin Bible Church, fully rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. What a thrill. What an absolute thrill. And that's what Paul's talking about there. In chapter 3, in verse 13, um, similar context, similar sentiments. Backing up to verse 11, may our God and Father Himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that He may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at and here's the parousia, the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. All right? So there's the parousia. Chapter 4 and verse 15. See, the, the uh, eschatology is not scary. Not for us. <laughs> it's only scary if you don't know the Lord. The end times is terrifying if you're, if you're an unbeliever. If you're going to be handed over to Satan and the Antichrist. If you're going to be left on earth to, to face <clears throat> bowls and trumpets and seals and, you know, destruction, yeah, the tribulation's a horrible thing. But not for us. We're gone. We're with the Lord. Chapter 4 and verse 15, um, backing up to verse 13 then, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. If you lose a loved one, does it make a difference if you know the Lord? If you're a believer and they're a believer and you know they're in heaven, you bet that makes a difference. For an unbeliever, what hope do you have? What comfort can you offer an unbeliever? None. No true comfort, not at all. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So when that trumpet sounds and we raise to meet the Lord in the air, guess who else is there? All our loved ones that have gone before. The dead in Christ rise first. Then we get caught up together. For this we say to you by word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. See, that's a very real consideration. If all you have is an Old Testament doctrine of resurrection, remember they don't have 1 Corinthians, they don't have 1 Thessalonians. They don't have what we have. All they have, they don't even have the Gospel of John yet, where Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. They don't even have that yet. All they've got is an Old Testament. They've got Job, I know that my Redeemer lives. They've got Daniel, chapter 12, with a twin resurrection of, of righteousness and, 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 and life and death, I think it's called there. Uh, life and everlasting disgrace that is called there. Okay? And so they're looking forward to the, uh, the end times resurrection of, <clears throat> you know, the resurrection of everybody at the end times. They're looking to the great white throne. They're looking to resurrection and judgment day. And the idea, if, if they thought it through, Paul had taught them rapture doctrine, the trumpet could sound today and we're going to get snatched up in the clouds. Well, does that mean 
that we're going to precede those that have died? He says, no, no, relax. Jesus is not going to marry a partial bride. Jesus is going to resurrect the entire bride of Christ. And those that have gone on before in Christ, not Old Testament believers, not Noah and Daniel and Job and Old Testament believers, but the bride of Christ, the church from Pentecost to rapture, those that have died in Christ, they will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain until the parousia. So the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Not Moses, not Daniel, not Adam and Eve, not any Old Testament believer. Only the dead in Christ. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them, the dead in Christ, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Eschatology is fun. It's a comfort. It's exciting. Like Andy Wood said at the Schaefer conference, he said, I can't think of a single problem I'm facing right now that the rapture is not going to take care of. Every test you're going through right now, rapture takes care of all of those. We get to go be with the Lord. Chapter 5 and verse 23. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And this is a title for God the Father. He is the God of peace. And um, this is what He does as we're studying in Philippians 2. He's at work. There's things He delegates to the Holy Spirit. There's things He delegates to the Son. And there's things He doesn't delegate. He Himself handles them personally. May the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete without blame at the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, he will also bring it to pass. He said he would do it, he's going to do it. Doesn't need our help to do it. (laughs) Okay? He's faithful. He made a promise. He is faithful. If he can't make good on this promise, why am I trusting him for eternal life? You realize the whole aspect of our salvation is grounded in a promise, in God's promise. If he's not faithful, we're not saved. So many wonderful truths to present in this. But uh, here we have it. Your spirit, your soul, and your body. We are trichotomous beings in Christ. Body, soul, and spirit. And uh, folks that want to argue otherwise are nonsensical to me when you have a passage as plain as that. All right. We get over to 2 Thessalonians. Next book, same message. (laughs) He hit them hard with it in 1 Thessalonians, then he had to write back to them because someone counterfeited his name on a letter and started to get them all uh, scared. Quickly shaken from their composure and disturbed as if from a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord had come. You know, if you get an email and supposedly it says from Pastor Bob and it's going to everyone at austinbiblechurch.com and it's a, it's a phony email, don't click the link, Okay probably have a virus in it or something. <laughs> but this is what happened. They got a letter as if from Paul saying the day of the Lord had come. And that was distressing. Some folks got, uh, got upset by that. Wow, we're in the tribulation? What happened to the rapture? Did we miss it? And Paul's saying here, you know better than that. The day of the Lord can't come until the departure comes first. The rapture has to come first. And so we see it here. Second Thessalonians 2.1 We request of you, brethren, with regard to the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ and our episunagoge, our gathering together to Him. That's the rapture of the church. With respect to the rapture of the church. This is the coming of the Lord and our gathering together to Him. Episunagoge is the noun. It's only used twice in the New Testament. This is where we're gathered Okay, and we talk about gatherings. We have a gathering here this morning, right? This is a gathering. The Jews would call it a synagogue, an epis, a, a synagogue, synago to to bring together, to gather together, and so we've gathered together, right? How many weddings start off with "Dearly beloved, we've gathered here today," or how many funerals, right? We've, "Dearly beloved, we've gathered here today." I should start every sermon with "Dearly beloved." We've gathered here today. In fact, we're going to talk about beloved here this morning or Wednesday night. We're going to talk about beloved. 
And so we've gathered. It's called an episunagoge. I'm sorry, a sunagoge from sunago, a sunagoge. We have gathered together. Or an ecclesia, uh, as a church, we are called out ones. Okay. So, as a church, we're gathered together, and we're gathered together for worship, we're gathered together for Bible study, we're gathered together for fellowship, we're gathered together for all kinds of things. We gather together. But there is an event coming that God calls an epi-sunagoge, right? That's like gnosis to epinosis. It's an intense gathering. And there is coming a day when we will be gathered from the four corners of the earth. We will be snatched up into the air to meet the Lord in the air. And that is an epi-sunagoge. That is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. So, do not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed. Okay? Think it through. Think it through. Don't be quickly shaken. What, what Satan wants to do, he doesn't want you to think about it. He just wants you to panic. He just wants you to react. He hits you with something and oh, that's terrible. And so, you don't even stop. You don't even think it through. You don't cycle some doctrine. Pray about it. either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. What's the day of the Lord? It's the day of wrath. It's the day of judgment. It's the day of vengeance. It's the tribulation. Fundamentally, it's the tribulation and the millennium. All combined is the day of the Lord. Even to the destruction of the heavens and the earth. The day of the Lord. All right. So let no one in any way deceive you. For the day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasia, the departure, comes first. And I believe that's another reference to the rapture. The apostasia in verse 3 is equivalent to the episunagoge of verse 1. And this is the whole point of what Andy Woods was talking about in his paper. If you, did you stream the Schaefer Conference? Go back and stream it. Stream uh, the, the message that Andy Woods had. It was an exegetical study in this chapter right here. The departure comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So we can't be in the tribulation because the church is still here, by definition. Tribulation can't start until the church leaves. So if we're still here, by definition, we're not there. All right. It's like trying to take the now and the the not yet passages from Revelation and twisting those around. The things that have to take place now, the things that will take place after these things. All right, so that's 2 Thessalonians. How about James? James 5, verses 7 and 8. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the parousia, until the coming of the Lord. Now how long does this test last? Can we be done with this already? Well, is Jesus back yet? Be patient, brethren, until the parousia, the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and the late rains. Well, how long does that take? You know, I'm I'm all for patience, but come on already. And don't pray for patience either, let me tell you. That is a dangerous prayer. That's like tempting the Lord. So don't, don't pray for patience, just, you know, grow and pray and, yeah. Verse 8, you too be patient, strengthening your hearts for the parousia, the coming of the Lord is near. That was written 2,000 years ago. How near is it? It's 2,000 years nearer than it was then, and it was near back then. Man, how much closer can you get? You know, I mean, you're starting to do differential calculus at that point. You're starting to approach a limit of nearness because we're getting nearer and nearer and nearer. Okay, but the parousia of the Lord, it was imminent when it was written. Some people think James is the first book written in the New Testament. I used to think that, but I I see too much of Galatians in the book of James. I think James made use of Galatians when he wrote it, when he wrote James. Uh, Be that as it may. We, uh, the coming of the Lord is near. The parousia is near. 1 John 2.28 passage that came up in the uh, Judgment State of Christ message a couple Sundays ago, or last Sunday, whenever it was. I've slept since then. I don't remember. All right. Now little children, abide in Him. Abide in Him. That's a command. 
Meno is the verb, continuous action, present tense. We're supposed to live in Him. It's not a command to get saved. It's already written to people who is written to people who already are saved. But how many saved people do you know aren't abiding in Christ? They don't abide in the Word of God. Okay, they have eternal life. Don't get me wrong. They will go to heaven when they die because you cannot lose your salvation. But they are spiritually useless presently in their uh, in their status because while they are regenerate. They are not walking that way. They're not abiding in the Word. They're not abiding in Christ. And this is what it comes down to when we study these aspects of this. So children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His parousia, at His coming. You know, that that passage talks about the trumpet and the shout. It doesn't say who's shouting. It just says the Lord Himself will descend with a shout. Is He Himself doing the shouting? He descends with a shout. Do the angels shout? The trumpet of God. The voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. Okay, so it's the voice of the archangel. Maybe it's the angels shouting. Or maybe we're the ones shouting. Or maybe the ones shrinking away from Him in shame are the ones shouting There's going to be a collective global, oh no. And it won't last too long because we get transformed in the twinkling of an eye. Okay? We're going to, however carnal we are, you could be as carnal as you've ever been, and a twinkling of the eye later, that flesh is gone. Your sin nature is gone. You're uh, you're going to put on that body of immortality. And uh, that's, that's how quick that's going to go. But it's curious to me because this passage does speak of a shame as opposed to a confidence. And there's more play on words there too because you've got a parousia in the parousia. The confidence is a parousia, a boldness, an openness. A, uh, you know, you're just in a parousia, openness before the Lord. Wow! Here I am, Lord, take me. You know, I'm ready. Versus an oh no, not today, not now. And so we have the parousia there. All right, so that's the use on that. And then we talk about beloved. Beloved. Subpoint B. Again, the, the numbering and lettering is slightly off because I restructured some of it from Wednesday night, so just throw out Wednesday night's notes and go with these. Jesus was obedient, and that was subpoint A with a one and a two under that. Now we're back to point B. Beloved, agapetos, the plural is agapetoi, beloved. Not just for weddings, not just for funerals. It's used throughout the New Testament. We can start using it one with another. We are beloved. We are beloved ones. And it's agape love too, by the way. It's not uh, phileo love. It's not uh, a rapport love. It's certainly not a sexual love or any of the other kinds of love the Bible talks about. It is the agape love God so loved the world, Christ so loved the church. Each one of us is an object of Christ's agape, and so we should have agape one for another. Every person you look at is beloved if they're in Christ. Does that keep you from uh, generating a mental attitude sin against that person? (laughs) Developing a bitterness, developing a jealousy, developing a, a hostility against a person? Say, well, uh, Their personality gets on my nerves. So what? (laughs) They're beloved. They are your brother for whom Christ died, your sister for whom Christ died. You know, if if personality getting on your nerves was an issue, then uh, some of us wouldn't be saved, right? (laughs) I wouldn't be saved. Well, what are we talking about here? We're not talking about rapport. We're not talking about uh, fellowship, although that is a different issue, which we should have with anyone that's beloved. Okay? We're talking about the agape love of beloved. Agapetos, used 62 times, used throughout the New Testament. Strong's number is 27. There's only 26 strong numbers alphabetized earlier than agapetos, including agape, number 26. But agapetos is Strong's number 27, used throughout the New Testament, starting with God the Father's beloved Son. He said, behold, my agapetos huios, my beloved son. 
And so when you and I, when Jesus starts calling us beloved, that, that, that means something. Because that's the, the, the term that the Father uses for Him. It's the kind of love the Father has for the Son. It's the kind of love we should have for one another. Matthew 3, 17, 12, 18, 17, 5. Three different times the voice boomed out of heaven to say, Behold my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. God's got a plan. God unfolds His plan. God revealed His plan ahead of time so that we would see it as it unfolded. And to make sure we didn't miss it as it unfolded, He appointed a prophet to testify, to be right there on hand when it happened. And then the the voice out of heaven, just in case there's any questions. (laughs) We want to be clear on this. This is Him. You know, and you think about it, the prophecies from Isaiah, the prophecies of the coming Christ, uh, the sonship of Christ, the beloved one, the beloved servant. There is a coming Messiah. And the Jews were looking for Him. You know, ever since Abraham, the Jews were looking for this Messiah, looking for this Christ. And so uh, this day, what a powerful day this must have been. Matthew 3.17 So after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on Him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my agapetos, my beloved, my huios, my son, in whom I am well pleased. The good pleasure of God the Father is the plan that, that He is bringing about. The good pleasure of God the Father, and it's centered in His Son. It's not centered in me, it's not centered in you, it's centered in His Son. And if we benefit, if we receive eternal life, well, that's a fringe benefit. <laughs> it's a side effect. I'm very happy for that side effect. That God desired to give a bride to His Son, and I get to be a part of that plan. What a, what a joy. So a voice came out of heaven, this, this is my beloved son. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah. This is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. This is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. This is him. And uh, so all of humanity is put on notice. The Jewish people are put on notice. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is their king. The herald is anointing the king. Everything is, the table is now set to usher in the kingdom. This was a true offer of the kingdom. We're going to talk about that next hour as well. The offer of the kingdom. It was offered in Moses' day. It was offered in Joshua's day. It was offered in David's day. It's offered again here. And they could have accepted. Instead, they crucified him. Okay? So the Jewish people are put on notice. The Gentiles are put on notice. The angels are put on notice. Remember, Satan's been sweating it for the last uh, 30 years or so, wondering if he succeeded. He massacred all those baby boys in Bethlehem. And uh, he didn't know. What's Satan supposed to know? Is he supposed to know? He's not on mission. But he uh, he motivates King Herod to go in there and murder all the boys. Two years old and under, just to be safe. Get all the boys there, kill them all. And as far as he knows, it's successful. Little does he know that Magi showed up just in the nick of time and provided some gold and frankincense and myrrh and were able to escape into Egypt for a couple of years. Just being able to hide like that and disappear. Isn't our God amazing? Absolutely amazing. If you had to walk out of this building right now and you couldn't go to the parking lot and you couldn't get your car, just with what you have right now and you say, oh, well, I couldn't do it. I left my cell phone at home. All right? But if you had... I'm teasing. If... Uh, but... With what you have right now in your pocket, how far could you get? On foot. Could you go hide in Egypt for two years? Okay. God is so amazing because He brought the gold, the frankincense and the myrrh and Joseph, Mary and Jesus were able to flee that very night. And uh, it's an amazing provision. And so Satan didn't know. And so for all these years, Jesus has the obscurity, what a, what a joy, a provision God gave him, uh, you know, some privacy to grow up, uh, to be a little kid and grow up and get doctrine and, and become solid. By the time he's 12, he's, he's practically PhD level with uh, talking to all the, the Pharisees there in the, in the temple. And then, 
He's still not done. He gets more privacy after that. Goes back to, to Nazareth and we think shortly thereafter is when Joseph dies and so Jesus has to shoulder a lot of responsibility. He's got younger siblings, brothers and sisters. He's got a widowed mother to take care of for 18 more years till he's 30 or even over 30. Till he reaches this moment here. <clears throat> and when the time comes for him to begin his public ministry, the whole world is put on notice that the agapetos of God the Father is ready to go to work. He's trained, he's equipped, he's suited, and he begins his uh, first Advent ministry. My agapetos son. So it happens again. I can imagine Satan was like, <gasps> and that leads right into chapter 4 where he drives him into the wilderness and starts to tempt him in chapter 4. Okay? Anyway, we'll get past that. Chapter 12, Matthew 12, in verse 18. And uh, more conflict here. He heals a man on the Sabbath. And they're just, they're hostile to him at this point. And um, so he throws the question back at them. He says, is it lawful to heal him on the Sabbath? Is it, I'm sorry, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Verse 9, so they might accuse him. And he said to them, well, what do you think? If you have a sheep that falls into a pit on the Sabbath, do you take it and lift it out of the pit? Of course you do. Everybody here does. Nothing wrong with that. How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Why do we have a Sabbath? We're going to study that in Hebrews. Why do we have Sabbath rest? To do good. To glorify God. To worship God. So he tells the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out was restored to normal like the other. And the Pharisees went out and conspired against him so how they might destroy him. Yeah, we want to kill this guy that can heal people. Yeah, we want to kill this guy that can raise people from the dead. See how vicious? See how angry they are? But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there and he followed him and he healed them all and he warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I am well pleased. So we have agapetos terminology. This is a quote actually comes from Isaiah. Isaiah 42 where I'm pretty sure it has to be. Yeah, agapetos is the Greek Septuagint there for the Hebrew. My beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Alright, so we have it there. And then how about chapter 17? Three times in Jesus' ministry, the Father testified three times. And here's the third one, chapter 17 and verse 5. Hmm. Peter, James, and John get to go up to the mountain. They get to see the transfiguration. He told them at the end of chapter 16, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in the kingdom. And then six days later, he brings them forward in time. I think transfiguration was time travel. I think they got a, a, a glimpse of the millennium uh, on this occasion. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. His garments became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Of course, they get resurrected at the beginning of the millennium. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. This is Peter always uh, opening his mouth, speaking before thinking. Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them and said, behold, a voice said, I said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Peter, can you close your mouth long enough? And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. All right. Anyway, we'll uh, pick up on this. And uh, the, the Mark and Luke synoptics are largely parallel, but some slight differences. Um, and then we'll move on. Because not only is it uh, used of the beloved son, uh, used in other applications too. There's a lot to deal with with agapetos. 
We'll tackle those on Wednesday. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your agapetos, beloved Son. And open our eyes to see what agapetos is all about and how we can relate one to another on a beloved basis. And uh, if we're struggling, Father, if we have a, a brother or a sister and maybe maybe they're not yet in a, in a beloved way of thinking or we don't yet have a beloved way of thinking with respect to them, show us how they've got a, a beloved relationship with you, that they are beloved. You sent your son to give them eternal life and uh, adjust our thinking accordingly. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen.